first time preaching through a, a prophetic book. And so, in one sense I'm excited, in another sense I, I tremble just bringing God's word to his people um, in a passage that's a little more difficult to study. I want to make sure I get it, get it right and portray it accurately. Um, so as we begin, let's just pray and uh, ask for the Lord's help. Father, I come before you uh, just realizing my own inadequacy, but your word's perfect adequacy. Wanting to get it right, to rightly divide it, to bring it to bear on people's lives in the way that you would have me do, and in a way that honors you. Pray that you would help me to do that this morning. Help everyone here to be attentive. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bring fruit to our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so today we're looking at a passage that's all about future hope, as, as Bobby mentioned a couple minutes ago. Ever since the fall, humanity has been searching largely in vain for hope. You can see this if you read through the Old Testament. If you didn't know what was coming, as you read through the Old Testament narratives, you'd be getting your hopes up over and over again and having them dashed over and over again. God promises after the fall, he promises a seed of the woman, but then we get Cain. Noah fears the Lord, but he sins and he fails. Abraham believes God and it's counted to him for righteousness. But then we get Hagar and Ishmael. Moses disobeys so much that he is not allowed to go into the promised land. David is a good king after God's heart, yet he fails miserably with Bathsheba and with numbering people and in other ways. Solomon fails. And the line of kings after Solomon just seems to continue to get worse and worse. It's a pretty discouraging picture when you think about it. Mankind is desperate for hope. And yet within mankind there is no hope. And even in our lives, even though we're New Testament believers, we know about the the Messiah, Jesus, who has already come and will come again. We have so much objective hope. We know there is true hope. And yet the way we feel from day to day can sometimes seem pretty hopeless. Maybe some of you are a little low on hope this morning. We all are from time to time. Again, we're not ever low on objective hope. But the subjective experience of that hope can wax and wane. And if you, if you turn on the news, hear about what's going on in the country, you certainly won't find hope there. Politicians love to promise hope, but they can't deliver it. Barack Obama, when he was campaigning for the presidency, promised hope and change. Donald Trump promised that he was going to make America great again. And yet, here we are, still surrounded by uncertainty. 
The economy seems unstable. Our culture can't figure out things as simple as the difference between a man and a woman. And our justice system seems to grow more perverted and twisted every day, calling good evil and evil good. Well, believe it or not, Israel and Judah during the time of, of Micah were in even worse shape than, than our nation is today. So God raised up the prophet Micah to warn Israel and Judah about the coming judgment that he was going to bring upon them. It's a sobering book. Many foretellings of judgment and the Babylonian captivity. But throughout the book, there's intertwined a, a ray of hope. Micah keeps flip-flopping between predictions of the coming judgment and predictions of a restoration after the judgment. So today, the passage we're going to be looking at in Micah 4 is one of those very hopeful passages. The judgment won't last forever. God will judge his people. He will not let their sin go unpunished. But he'll restore them. So read with me, if you would, Micah 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So because Micah is probably a less familiar book to many of you, I'll just give you a, a quick, um, quick catch-up to, to where Micah's at in the history of, of Israel. It says in chapter 1 of Micah that he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This would put him in the probably around the late 700s B.C., Micah's ministry overlapped with that of Isaiah. It was right around the time the northern kingdom was invaded and, and captured by Assyria. But it's before the, the southern kingdom of Judah was invaded by, by Babylon. So in case you're, you're still uh, a little unfamiliar, the nation of Israel had been divided ever since ever since shortly after the time of Solomon's death. The, the northern kingdom, they called Israel, 
That was most of the tribes. And then the southern kingdom was Judah. They were both incredibly corrupt and unfaithful to the Lord. So God eventually brought in the Assyrians as a judgment on Israel. They invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took over Samaria, its capital city, in 721 B.C. and took the the kingdom into captivity. And they also began invading southern Judah as well. But at the pleading of, of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, God had mercy, and he intervened. That night when Isaiah or Hezekiah pleaded with the Lord, God caused a mass death in the Assyrian camp, killing 185,000 soldiers in one night. There have been speculations whether this was a plague or, or what. We don't know for sure. But we know that it was an act of the Lord. And so the king of Assyria turned back and never ended up capturing Jerusalem. If you're interested, you can go back and read that account in um, 2 Kings 16-19. through 19. But Judah was not off the hook because they would be captured by Babylon about a century later. And this was God's judgment for their unfaithfulness. So Micah's message is about this captivity, the Babylon the Babylonian captivity. Like his message is that Judah has been so unfaithful to God and his covenant with them that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed and the people are going to be led away into captivity in Babylon. Look, if you would, at Micah's description of the situation in uh, the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its princes princes teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So just imagine Jerusalem, a thriving metropolis, becoming a wooded height, a place where you can run a plow. It's incredible to think about. But this is the black backdrop against which our passage today is presented. In our passage today, Mike is talking about Judah's restoration after it undergoes God's judgment. So in this passage, Mike is going to give us five statements about God's restoration of his people. Five statements about God's res- restoration of his people. So when is this restoration going to happen? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Micah says it shall come to pass in the latter days. The latter days is an expression that happens 
fairly frequently in the Old Testament. But unfortunately, for our, our understanding purposes, it's, it's got a fairly broad range. It can be anything from an unspecified time in the future to referring to the end of time. It's definitely future from the perspective of Micah, but it's not entirely specific. I personally believe this is most likely fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And I'll show you why when we, when we get there. But just keep that in mind as we go for now. So the first of five statements about God's restoration of his people is the Lord will reign from Jerusalem. The Lord will reign from Jerusalem. Let's read verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's talking about the mountain where Jerusalem and particularly the temple were built. So what's so significant about that? Why is, why is that going to be raised up above the other mountains? Well, he's saying that this will become a, a central place in the earth. Jerusalem becomes really the capital of the world. But why does he mention the mountain of the house of the Lord as opposed to other mountains? He says the highest of the mountains, and it will be lifted up above the hills. Well, if you remember, Israel and Judah and the surrounding nations, when they would worship their pagan idols, they would do it on high places, mountains, hills. I think Micah is taking Jerusalem where the true God was worshipped, and he's pitting it against the places where false gods were worshipped. So not only will a geographical location be exalted, but the worship of Yahweh will be exalted. So what does it mean, the highest of the mountains? What does it mean this Jerusalem will become high? Well, it could be geographical or geological, referring to its literal height, its elevation. And I think that's actually the case, at least partially, because there's a passage in Zechariah 14, verses 10 and 11. It says, The whole land shall be turned into a plain, from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So with the, the geological changes that happen at at the end of the age and the return of Christ and the, the upheaval. Sounds like the surrounding area will be flattened or lowered and Jerusalem will become high in comparison. But it's more than that. It's also metaphorical, referring to how Jerusalem and where God's house is is perceived in the minds of men. Like I said, the worship of Yahweh will become central, will become exalted. In the earth. And it also says in verse 1 the peoples will flow to it, to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Notice it says peoples plural, not people singular. In English, 
the word people is a little funny, but usually in modern English when we say people, singular, we're referring to multiple individual persons. Well, this says peoples, plural, referring to people groups. Israel was God's people, God's people group. But this is multiple people groups. That, that word, in this case, is referring to not just Israel, but it's referring to people groups from around the earth. Gentiles, that's us. They will flow there like a river. The, the word flow here actually comes from the same root as the word river. People want to go to Jerusalem. They're not merely going there to sightsee. They're going to learn about the true God and to worship Him. And this verse we see really the undoing of parts of the fall and some of the, the aftermath of it. Think back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden away from God's relational presence or at least the closeness of the presence that they had experienced before. That's being undone. God is reigning from Jerusalem and the people are flocking there. Also think about the Tower of Babel when people were separated and dispersed around the earth. Yes, people are meant to populate the whole earth and they will, but they won't be divided anymore. They'll be reunited in the worship and the fear of the Lord. Just like God promised to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. So why are people flowing or flocking to Jerusalem? Well, that brings us to our second statement about God's restoration of his people. And that is the Lord will instruct the nations. The Lord will instruct the nations. Look at verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations want to learn the ways of Yahweh. This is something that's never been seen before in human history. Can you imagine what this might look like? Joe Biden, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, leaders of nations, and the nations themselves saying, let's go to Jerusalem and learn about God, about the Lord, about Yahweh. Learn about His ways so that we can walk in His paths. Well, in this day, not only nations, not only leaders, but individuals, the peoples will flock to Jerusalem. They want to hear about the Lord, hear His word, and obey it. That's not all. He says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion's basically a synonym of Jerusalem here. So God's law and God's word are going out. Notice the word for here in, in verse 2. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. He's explaining what's so significant about the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's significant because that's where God's word comes from. It's also, it's also explaining why the peoples want to go there. They want to hear the word of the Lord straight from him. 
So he mentions law. And I think it's helpful just to point out that so often these days law is misunderstood. They almost, some people almost seems to, seem to treat the, the Old Testament law as though it was a cruel joke on God's people and now we're under grace. But no, the law was never a bad thing. It's only a bad thing for you if you try to justify yourself by it. But the law is inherently good. God's law will go out. It's still useful. It's not just a legal code. We tend to think of law in that way in our culture. But it's not that. Nor is it a means of climbing your way up to God. It's the word Torah. You probably think of the first five books of the New Testament referred to as the law. Same word. It is law. There are do's and don'ts. But the word can also be translated as instruction. God is not only telling his people what to do and what not to do. He's instructing them how they should live and how they can walk before him. But not only is God's law going out, it also says his word, which is basically a synonym, but this is all of of God's revelation to his people. God's word will be free and accessible to his people. That's why the people want to go to Jerusalem, to be as close to it as possible. And that's not what was happening in Micah's day at all. Micah 3.5 says this. He says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. Now the prophets were the people who were supposed to be administering God's word to the people in this time period. It says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. So they're prophets for hire. They prophesy good things about you if you pay them, and if not, they prophesy destruction. Sounds kind of like what we have in our day sometimes. Preachers out there who preach whatever they think people want to hear, whatever will draw a crowd. They're not concerned about being faithful to God and His Word. They're concerned about drawing a crowd and earning money or conning people out of their money. Or the politicians who say they believe whatever policy will, will, they think will buy them the most votes. Well, no more of that when Jesus is the one ruling here on the earth. And look at the result of the word of God going out. This brings us to the third statement about God's restoration of his people. In verse 3, the Lord will bring about lasting peace. The Lord will bring about lasting peace. Let's read verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So the Lord is going to judge between many peoples and decide disputes between nations far away. If you think about it, war has always been the way we've settled our disputes if the disputes get big enough. Disputes start with a personal confrontation. If they keep growing, they end in a fight or a, or a lawsuit. If that doesn't settle it, the government gets involved and it moves on up the chain of authority until it's at the highest level in the land. If two nations can't agree on an important issue, then they go to war. 
Well, when the Lord is the one ruling here on the earth, if a dispute goes up the chain, it reaches the Lord. And he will decide these things so perfectly that war will be totally unnecessary. Look at the second half of verse 3 again. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This is describing total disarmament. It will be the first time since the fall that we've known true world peace. People try to establish world peace. We have the United Nations. We have peace treaties all over the place. And yet the nations are still at each other's, at each other's throats to some extent all the time. They're converting their war material into agricultural and industrial equipment. It's a total disbanding of militaries. He says they'll beat their swords into plowshares. The word here translated plowshare is, is a little obscure. It's a fairly rare Hebrew word. One commentator said it could be an iron point mounted on a wooden beam that would have been used similar to a plow, although they didn't have a, what we would think of as a modern plow in this, in this time period. Or the word could also refer to a, a hoe or a mattock or some implement like that. What's important, though, is not exactly what it is, but what it's used for. It's used for farming, for producing. And they'll also beat their spears into pruning hooks. This is another, this, the pruning hooks is another more rare Hebrew word, but probably referring to a, a sort of knife that was used for pruning grapevines. So these two, images, these two images are picturing a, a time when war will become so unnecessary that military equipment is no longer essential for a nation to have. So it can all be repurposed for something useful. Instead of being used to kill and destroy, it's going to be used productively for agriculture and for industry. And lastly, it says that they will not learn war anymore. So places like West Point will be obsolete. There's no reason to study warfare when there is no such thing as warfare. Can you imagine a world where there's no military and no need for one? No nuclear warfare, no arms races, no hostilities. That's the world that Micah is describing here. And this brings us to our, our fourth statement about God's restoration of his people. The Lord will ensure tranquility. The Lord will ensure tranquility. Look at verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So now Micah turns from discussing what will happen to nations to now what will happen with individual people. It says they will sit every man, individual, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. This is picturing at least two things. One is prosperity. It's a time of prosperity. They have vines, they have fig trees. They're established plants. These take time. And in, in a war zone, you don't have these things. 
and in Israel or Judah during the time of Micah, these things were pretty unstable with Assyria invading the land. But not only do they have vines and fig trees, they have time. It says they will sit under their vines and their fig trees. So they're not having to work from sun up to sun down just to scrape together a living. They can sit. They can rest. They also have a place to grow these things. They have land. So it's a time of prosperity. But it's not only prosperity, it's also peace. It says no one will make them afraid. There are no bands of raiders coming to destroy the countryside. There are no foreign armies coming in to attack and pillage. No, there's just peace. Lasting peace. So when is all this going to take place? Well, some believe this is a description of what happened when Judah was brought back from exile, out of Babylon, back into their own land, 70 years after the, after the deportation. But if you take it this way, then it means that Michael is using massive hyperbole because the kinds of conditions described here never really happened in history. It's not something that fits in any time in our past. No, whatever is, is going on here in this passage is something that's still future to us. So is it the final state? Is it the end of the age? The new earth? Well, I don't think it's that either. Or at least probably not. It could be. But I personally lean toward the millennial reign of Christ on earth. I know this gets into other matters of eschatology, and I'm not here to settle all those this morning by any means. But if you look at this passage, there are a couple reasons why I think that this doesn't fit well with the new earth and fits much better with the millennial reign of Christ. The first is look at verse 3, where it talks about him settling disputes among nations. So this implies that there are still disputes to settle, or at least at the beginning of this age. Doesn't necessarily mean it couldn't refer to the new earth, because maybe it's talking about the disputes that are settled right before the beginning of the new earth. But in the way it's portrayed, it doesn't really sound like it. But the second and more compelling reason, I think, is the description of the mountain of the house of the Lord in verse 1. Think about it. The new earth is not going to have a temple. God dwells with his people with no temple. So why mention the house of the Lord or the mountain where the house used to be if there's no temple there anymore? Why would it be that significant? Again, this doesn't totally rule, rule out the new earth. Maybe in the minds of, of Micah's readers, they, they understood what he was talking about, that he's talking about the worship of the Lord. But I think this does, as I say, fit better in a, a millennial reign of Christ here on this earth. But it's hard to be totally definitive. And it's really not the main point of our passage to give us a timeline or a chronology of these events. The point of this passage is to give us hope. We know for sure that this will happen, even if we don't know for sure when it is. Look at the end of verse 4 again. 
He says, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This is something God has spoken that will never change. So our job is simply to trust God and walk by faith in the meantime. This brings us to our fifth statement about God's restoration of his people. We've really seen the whole prophecy now. Now Micah is jerking us back to the world of present reality. The fifth statement is the remnant will remain, will maintain faithfulness. The remnant will maintain faithfulness. The nations are not worshiping God right now. Look at verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So right now the nations are rebelling and even Judah and Israel are rebelling. But it says we, that's the believing remnant, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This verse is both, I think, a prediction and a resolution. It's a prediction because God is ultimately the one who enables his faithful remnant to remain true to him. But it's also a resolution for what to do. Judah needs to strive to remain faithful to the Lord. That's what we need to do today. I think that's what Micah would want us to take away from this passage. Although we're not Israel, we're Gentiles, most of us, probably all of us, we're grafted in to God's promises and to the future hope. It says the nations will flow to Jerusalem. That's us. This is an incredibly wonderful promise about the things God is going to do in the future. And it ought to affect how we live in the present. So real quickly before we end, what are some some ways that this passage should affect us this week? I think it should make us worry less for one. If we know God is going to restore all things and, and right the wrongs, we don't have to worry about what happens in the short term. It should make us more joyful. We know that no matter how hard this life might be, that there is a better, to, a better day coming. It should make us less attached to our possessions now, knowing that whatever we may have to lose in this life is trivial compared to what we have coming. It should make us want to remain faithful to the Lord and not be like the surrounding nations who wander away. And it should give us hope that every act of obedience, every act of faith, every time we say no to temptation and yes to the truth and we renew our minds when we're tempted to be deceived by sin and and the lies of the world and our fallen natures, we know that this will be rewarded someday. Verse 5 also gives us realistic expectations. It says, All the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. So the nations around us aren't walking after the Lord. They're walking in their own ways, including the nation that we live in now. Our leaders, our culture, even many of our own acquaintances and friends, co-workers... Don't follow the Lord. But as those who trust in the true God, it's our responsibility to remain faithful to Him and to actually trust the Lord. It's so easy to say we trust God, but not do so when it comes to the, the day-to-day decisions and difficulties 
and times when we're called to obey, even when it doesn't make sense. So how is your trust today? Is it shaky? Well, God's word is not shaky. God's character is not shaky, and his promises are not shaky. God will remain faithful to us so we can remain faithful to him this week by his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your your help. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the ability to remain faithful that you've given to us by your spirit that you've implanted in us. I pray that you would help us to walk by faith this week, to say no to temptations, to say yes to your word, to renew our minds, to not be deceived, and to be a light to the world around us, even as they continue to to pursue their, their false gods, the things that they worship. Pray that it would be a light to the world and that people would see it and be drawn to you and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dismissed.